First of all, Jeff will be leaving in a little over a week. The 30th is next Wednesday. He'll be leaving a week from tomorrow to go to Brazil. He'll be teaching in three different cities, so pray for his health, pray for uh, encouragement for him, and for those who are also uh, assisting him, that everything, all the logistics and everything else uh, works out okay. He gets on the right airplanes, lands at the right airport, along with his luggage. Oh, that's right. Those of us who travel know how important that is. Okay, so pray for, pray for him. He will be uh, gone until November the 15th as he, uh, he will be teaching uh, there in Brazil. I will also be gone for vacation and will be uh, leaving after church this coming Sunday. So I will be here Sunday morning. All right, so everybody can be here on Sunday morning. And then le- I'll be leaving in the afternoon and return on Monday, uh, November the uh, 11th. And uh, there will be two people covering for me. In the pulpit on Sunday morning will be Albert. Albert just does a fine, steady job. He's just great at handling the word. And so he will be in the pulpit on the two Sundays. And then uh, Dr. Douglas Petrovich will be here on Tuesday, both weeks on Tuesday and Thursday. He is a professor of biblical history and exegesis at the Bible Seminary in Katy, Texas. And you will... Uh, he will be dealing with uh, various a- aspects of archaeology and the Bible. So I'm sure you will uh, thoroughly enjoy uh, enjoy him. Also, we just need to be in prayer for the finances of the church. Pray that God would supply those needs because, as usual, at the end of the year, we tend to be coming up a little short. So be in prayer for that. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. Before we open God's word together this evening, let's make sure we're in right relationship with the Lord. Yes, you may pray for the Astros that they will defeat the Washington Nationals. There's nothing wrong with that prayer. And um, what? Astros? Two to nothing. All right. God answers our prayer before he hears it. All right. Go Astros. All right, so we will have a few moments of silent prayer so we can put our focus and attention where it needs to be on God, on his word, and on what the Holy Spirit has to teach us this evening. And then uh, we will wait until the end. And when I say amen, I want to hear the score. Okay? At the end. At the end. The final... The final amen, the final prayer, closing prayer, final amen. I want to hear the score. Okay. You know, like Astros, 10 to nothing. Okay, something like that. All right. Let's bow our heads together and go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, it's just so... Wonderful that we can come together and focus on your word. It just uh, brings such comfort to us. It strengthens us. It causes us to settle down. It provides stability because it teaches us that you are the rock of our salvation. You are the God, our rock, and that you alone are the source of stability in our lives. And no matter how hectic things get, no matter how crazy things get, no matter how chaotic and out of control things get either just within our our daily schedules and daily lives or whether it has to do with uh, national uh, situations or national politics or international uh, politics economics all sorts of things going on now with this election next year father we just rest in you we know you're in control and you are directing history towards the conclusion you've set from eternity past and so we too need to be able to just rest, to trust in you, cast our burdens upon you, 
and you are the one who will sustain us. You will never suffer the righteous to be moved. So, Father, tonight as we study your word, continuing in our understanding of of, uh, confession and cleansing and restoration to service, fellowship, Father, we pray that you would help us to understand these things and see what we are taught by David in Psalm 51. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, open your Bibles with me, first of all, to 1 Timothy chapter 2. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8. And I want to go over, I'm going to pull it up on the, the screen here. This is uh, an article that came out. This is from the Christian Post. And the picture that you have there on the left, uh, you have Beth Moore, who is from Houston and is a well-known Bible teacher, women's Bible teacher here, comes out of uh, First Baptist. She has a son-in-law who's the pastor of Bayou City Fellowship. And she and uh, then in the middle is Paula White, who is a wacko charismatic, way out of control, in my opinion, bad theology, name and claim it, prosperity theology, and a first-class heretic in numerous areas. Okay, there was this panel discussion that occurred recently, and in in this panel discussion, John MacArthur... And you know, I don't always agree with John MacArthur. I disagree with him on his lordship salvation and on his Calvinism and his waffling on dispensationalism uh, and a few other things. But what I respect about him is his, con- his conviction is that the word of God is absolute tr- absolutely true and it is sufficient. And therefore, you do not let culture or experience uh, ex, uh, interpret the word of God, but you have to uh, interpret the word of God in a literal, uh, historical, exegetical manner. Now, there are um, good men who walk by the Spirit who come up with differences in theology. Some of those are significant and divergent, and we would not be inclined because we see a backdoor works in his some of his uh, things that he has said in the gospel. But in this particular controversy, he is right on, and he is being castigated by some men who ought to know better, and I am extremely disappointed in some of these, some of these men. But it's a classic example. I ought to, should have waited until th- uh, Thursday night because we're dealing with false teachers, but we're not quite there yet. What we have here is, in this article says, lamenting what he sees as a heretical plunge away from biblical order, Pastor John MacArthur, who leads Grace Community Church in California, skewered, I love that verb, skewered popular Bible teacher Beth Moore. I think that you could say, if you were to read Galatians chapter 2, that the Apostle Paul skewered Peter, when he succumbed to the legalism of the Judaizers, he was wrong and he confronted him to his face. That's never pleasant. The Word of God, notice in 2 Timothy uh, 3, 16 and 17, uh, all Scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for making you feel good, giving you emotional high, warm, fuzzy, uh, validating your lifestyle. Is that what it says? The first word is rebuke. That's not pleasant. When we come face to face with the word of God, the first thing it tells us is that we're wrong. And then it corrects us and then sets us on the right path. So that's what he is doing here is he rebukes. So he skewers Beth Moore and President Donald Trump's spiritual advisor and I just want to gag at this. Paula White, who is just crazy charismatic, way out of control. And evangelicals who support the idea of women preachers in general. When I was a young man of about 23 years of age and was an, had been accepted at Dallas Seminary but had not gone there, I was in a group of three other men, or two other men, 
who were being prepped, as it were, by the pastor at that time, Ted Stone, who was the pastor of Spring Branch Community Church. And he had only been there a short time, but I appreciated the fact that he wanted to help prep guys before they went to seminary. And one of the things that he talked about is, I remember one day, and it sort of surprised me, coming from the background from which I came, he said, one of the great battles that you are going to be facing in the church is has to deal with the role of women. And it's going to be a major battle at the seminary level because the pressure is on seminaries because they get federal dollars through, through grants and they get federal dollars through the GI Bill and other things. And so the pressure is already being felt at Dallas Seminary. And they've started what they call the MABS program up until about 1973 or 4, they only had the Master of Theology program. They started the MABS program so they would have a lower-level two-year program. It was only supposed to be in the summer and maybe a short two-week winter term where they could, you know, lay people could come and get a lower-level master's degree, and this would allow them to have a program that uh, accepted women into the seminary, hoping that that would get them out from under any any government pressure and also accreditation pressure. And so that didn't work. And by the beginning of the 1980s, there was tremendous pressure to open up the Master of Theology program to, to women. Nothing wrong with women being in the classes or learning the Bible, but the purpose that Lewis Berry Chafer had for founding the seminary and the purpose statement for Dallas Seminary was to train men for the pastoral ministry. Now, that wasn't a chauvinistic or uh, misogynistic statement. It was following 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 through 15, where Paul says, I do not allow women to teach or have authority over men. Two different things. And Ted Stone was a prophet and didn't know it, but that was exactly the problem. I remember my third year in seminary, the speaker in chapel was Elizabeth Elliot. She was the widow of a young missionary who had gone in to, with New Tribes Missions into Ecuador. And he and uh, his, I think there were four others who went in to try to establish contact with the Alka Indi Indians were all slaughtered. That happened in, in the late 50s. And she wrote a book called Through Gates of Splendor, which was the story of those missionaries and their, their martyrdom. And so she was something of an evangelical celebrity. And so she was invited to speak in chapel. And she said that she was there. She knew some of the students there, did not think she should be there. and But she was there under the authority of the men. And so uh, she wasn't there to um, teach or have authority. Did you hear that? Bible says teach and have authority, two separate things. So she was going to teach the scriptures, but not in a, a but she didn't have the authority. It was in the faculty that was behind her. Just a total distortion of scripture. And then in the early 80s, they opened, they yielded to pressure and opened up the THM program to women. And then later, they opened up the THD program to women. And I wasn't there or in those classes. I'd already graduated, but I heard from men how, how it really truly changed the orientation in the classroom. After one lecture, one of the professors who had been going through the Greek text in Hebrews 12, uh, the first question was from a woman who said, well, I wonder how Sarah felt about that. And it just went downhill from there. And as we, I pointed out recently, that's something God never, never asks anybody. Well, how did Adam feel about that? How did Abraham feel about that? Never did he say, well, well, you know, I lowered the boom on David. I wonder how he felt about that. How did, how did Peter feel? We don't have that in Scripture, but that began the subjective shift uh, that, well, probably it had already started because Christian psychology came into the program at Dallas, came into the curriculum in the mid-60s. 
but but it is it, it keeps pushing. And in my first church, when I was interviewed at, for a pastor, they asked me what did I think about women teaching men in Sunday school, and I said that's not what the Bible teaches. But I understand you've been doing this for two or three decades, and I'm not going to rock the rock the boat on this. And uh, so if those women are still teaching that's fine with me but those three women who were teaching were so angry and bitter in their soul that somebody had said and even suggested that what they did was wrong that they made it their mission over the next two years to gossip and slander and malign anything that I did which eventually led to one of the most horrible congregational meetings, the kind of horror meetings that you hear about in some churches where I was um, let go. And fortunately, there were some really good mature men in that church who got wind of this uh, earlier in the afternoon, and so they made sure that they intervened and made sure that I was given a nice golden parachute uh, on the way out so I wasn't just just let go unceremoniously with no... Um, severance package or anything like that and the highlight of the meeting for me when when the secretary's husband and the secretary was one of the ringleaders of the women stood up in the middle of a of a debate over robert's rules of orders and said what in the hell do we have to do to get rid of this man and he was standing right behind me half the church left that night and never went back and started a new church which is still in good function down in uh, down in the Texas City area, so I have my war wounds over this particular issue. John MacArthur is getting a few more stripes. He says, "I think the church is caving in to women preachers." Just the other day, the same thing happened with Paula White. A whole bunch of leading evangelicals endorsed her new book. She's a heretic and a prosperity preacher. Three times married. What are they thinking? MacArthur said of the televangelist who chairs the Evangelical Advisory Board of the Trump administration during the Truth Matters conference. Um, so he goes on. His reference to why it comes in the wake of recent criticism of several by MacArthur, several prominent evangelical leaders, including Franklin Graham, um, who encouraged his two million followers to support White's latest book, Something Greater. That's terrible. This is pure heresy. And so then Robert Jeffries at First Baptist Dallas also endorses her book and encourages people to read that, as well as Jerry Falwell, Jr., president of Liberty University, who said on Twitter, Paula's life is an encouragement to so many, and I'm sure this book will encourage you. So now... Uh, then he goes on to say, MacArthur's comments on white women in ministry, however, were sparked during a panel discussion in which he was asked to give a pithy response to Beth Moore, who is a prominent evangelical Bible teacher and was pushing the Southern Baptist Convention at their last meeting, not this last year, but 2018, to start allowing the ordination of women and women pastors. And so... Uh, his response was simply, go home. Now, everybody got their knickers in a knot over that. Oh, we get so offended so easily. Wonder what they would have done if the, if the Apostle Paul confronted them over something. They would, or Jesus, when he told the Pharisees that they were a brood of vipers, or John the Baptist that they were a brood of vipers, and Jesus told them they were of their father, the devil. These are not words and phrases that are warm and fuzzy, but they're the truth, and the truth is not always warm and fuzzy. And so MacArthur went on to say, there's no case that can be made biblically for a woman preacher, period, paragraph, end of discussion, and I would add over and out. This is not up for discussion. It is very clear in the scriptures, and if you hold to a literal exegetical hermeneutical view of the scripture, then you have to hold this. The best books out there that I know of, there's an older one by Dr. Ryrie on the role of women in the church, and there's a, a newer one that came out in the late 80s by Wayne House, which has, I think it's called Women in Ministry. And then there's another book by a man named Andreas Kostenberger, 
and um, someone else on the, the women in the called women in the church, and it is a thorough study and investigation of First Timothy two eight to fifteen, and it's just very clear. And so people come up, well, this has been used to abuse women. Well, let me tell you, a lot of these people who are pro-evangelical feminists are guilty of abusing women too. It's not restricted to just people who hold to a literal view of Scripture. It's a horrible thing to be abusive. That's not authorized by anybody who holds any of these positions. That is just a terrible ad hominem argument, which is a, which is a logical fallacy. It should have no weight uh, whatsoever. So anyway, um, I saw that today, and it just shows how the world has taken control of evangelicalism. And it started off with just a very minor thing back in the late 60s and 70s, and it has permeated today. And to look at the men of the word of great stature who got on board attacking MacArthur for this statement is it's sickening but it shows that we have a malignancy in this in the evangelical church due to lack of sound Bible teaching lack of sound uh, exegesis and the conforming of the of the church to the world in, in order to keep people and to keep dollars because when you really teach the word of God and make it clear, you're not obnoxious, you're not mean, you're just, this is what God says. I may not like it, I may not agree with it sometimes, but that's what the Word of God says. I may not fully comprehend why God says to do things, but that's what God says. And as a pastor, we have to preach the Word, teach the Word, and we dare not compromise or let the world come in. And that is what is happening so much, and so we have all these problems. Okay, our passage is in Psalm 51, the last section, Psalm 10 to 19, which is the restor- which focuses on restoration to worship and service. Now that doesn't happen in this chapter. Forgiveness is what David is crying out for in this section. He cries out for forgiveness, but he never receives it in this psalm. When we come to the end, he is saying, basically, if I am forgiven, then I will be able to do these things. And so he's talking about what he will do, that he will uh, teach the people, he will rejoice in the Lord, he will praise the Lord, and he will uh, bring sacrifices. But he can't do that until he is forgiven. So that's the focal point of the last part of of the chapter. Now, we started off in 2 Samuel 12 when Nathan the prophet confronted David over his two major sins, adultery with Bathsheba, and then the cover-up and murder of Uriah the Hittite. Then we came to Psalm 51, and we'll go to Psalm 32 next, talking about how that fits with the confession and forgiveness statement in the text. And what we saw there is when Nathan confronted David, David, we learn from the psalm, has already been wrestling with his legal guilt as well as his spiritual guilt. And he immediately recognizes and the, the need for forgiveness and says, and it confesses and says that he has, he acknowledges his sin before God. And Nathan, as a prophet, only prophets and priests could announce someone's forgiveness because they represented God. And so Nathan, as a prophet, tells him, you are forgiven. So David David writes this psalm afterward to reflect on all of the underlying dynamics of his sin, his cry for forgiveness, and his prayer for restoration. It's indeed, what, what, is he, what is he praying for here in Psalm 51? What is the vow that he articulates at the end? He says in verse 13, Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners shall be converted or shall turn to you. 
That's exactly what Psalm 51 does. In Psalm 51, David has taught centuries of believers, generation after generation, on how to confess sin and the need for humility and submission to the authority of God. And that's what we've seen so far. David cries out to God for forgiveness in Psalm 51, 1 through 6. Then in Psalm 51, 7 to 12, he prays to God specifically for forgiveness of sin and cleansing. And then in the last part, 13 to 19, David expresses his vow to teach and praise God when, if, God forgives him. So that has that does not actually happen or is not talked about within the structure of this particular uh, psalm. So we've looked at each part here, and I just want to remind you of a couple of key verses. He cries out to God to have mercy on him and to blot out or to scrape off his transgression so that they're completely erased or eradicated. That would be the best way for us to understand that. And this is what Isaiah 43, 25 says, that God is the one who eradicates our transgressions. And that word transgression has to do with rebellious acts against God and against his authority. And it is God's chesed love, his loving kindness, his faithful love, loyal love, steadfast love. Those are some of the many ways it's translated his mercy and also his tender mercy brings together the love that is in the background that motivates God's grace and his mercy toward us. So he prays that God will have mercy and eradicate his transgressions to wash him thoroughly and cleanse him. And the word that we have here for cleansing, uh, tacher, is the word that is usually translated with the Greek word katharizo that we find in John, 1 John 1, 9, if we confess, which means to acknowledge or admit, we see that in the way the Hebrew uh, word is used in the Old Testament. If we acknowledge or admit our sins to God, he is faithful and just, that is, he is faithful and righteous, emphasis on his tzedakah, his righteousness, to forgive us our sins and cleanse us. That's this word, complete cleansing and restoration to uh, fellowship with God, to ministry, to service, all of that. It is as if the sin has not been committed and there's restoration there. And this is what we see happen with uh, with David. Uh, we'll talk about the different words Verse 3, he just talks about how this is a reflection of his genuine guilt. He knows he's not forgiven yet. He sees his sin before him mentally. He knows what he has done. It weighs heavy on his conscience. And it's a different funk, it's a different form of the word in Isaiah in Psalm 51 3. It's it's parallel to always before me. And as we'll see when we get to Psalm 32, 5, it's different from the word acknowledge, which is a hifil instead of a cal of this same verb. And that just is a causative sense. And so it changes its meaning to confess or acknowledge or admit. He acknowledges his sin. His sin is always before him. In verse 4, he recognizes the sin is only against God, against you, you only have I sinned. And he identifies it as evil. All sin, which is rebellion against God, is evil. The, he breaks at least four of the Ten Commandments. That is evil. Evil isn't restricted to just uh, human good or, or relative good, it, religious good. It is also expressed in terms of overt sins. So he says this evil in your sight, and then he emphasizes God's justice. And this is the uh, verb here, tzaddik, which can be translated justice or righteousness, that you may be found, and I would translate it probably righteous, when you speak. It is according to the standard of your character. That's what righteousness, justice then, is the application of that standard to, um, to people. 
Oh, we saw that. Um, then in verse 5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin. My mother conceived me. We'll come back to this later on. It is a, a crucial verb, uh, a verse. And every place I look this verse up to see what I could find on how it's handled by uh, different scholars. And I've got about, I don't know, I've got hundreds of volumes of uh, theological journals, probably about 30 different journals, all in Lagos. And all of the articles that this hit on were articles related to the abortion debate, every one of them. So we'll come back and talk about that in a subsequent lesson, uh, probably after we either after I get back from vacation or wait until we finish Psalm, Psalm 32. But this is talking about the fact that he is conceived, his body receives the transmission of sin and the sin nature from Adam. It is not talking about the fact that his mother's marriage or lack of marriage was, uh, was an issue. There are some who say that, well, his mother was having an affair with his father, Jesse, and I've tracked that down. There's only a handful of people who have tried to make an issue of that, and unfortunately, uh, that, that just isn't the case. Then we come to... Um, the main, a main issue here, are we sinners because we sin, or do we sin because we are sinners? Arminianism says that you, uh, you're a sinner because you sin, that when you're born, you are free of sin. You're born just, the day you're born, you're just like Adam the day he was created. You're free from sin. And that is the foundation for Arminianism, and that is a, a terrible problem in their system. We're sinners. Uh, we sin because we're sinners. It's the second option. And that's what David says in this verse. I was corrupted from the very uh, conception, and I have been a sinner, and therefore I have sinned. I violated God's truth. So in verse 6, he says, You desire truth or in the inward parts. And in the hidden part, this is talking about the soul, the immaterial part of man, inward parts and hidden part. Uh, internally, you will uh, you desire truth, and in the hidden part, you will make me to know uh, wisdom. Then in verse seven, eight, and nine, he has this these imperatives of request to purge me with hyssop, to wash me, so he will be clean, so he'll be whiter than snow so that it will be as if he had not sinned, because it's eradicated, that sin is eradicated. And then in verse 8, which we'll come back to because it relates to the second half, make me hear joy and gladness. Why would he hear joy and gladness? Because he's forgiven. Okay, he's forgiven of the sin. So that's the issue here is his forgiveness, forgiveness of his forgiveness for sin. Make me hear joy and gladness that the bones you have broken may rejoice. And I pointed out in Psalm 32, this is a figurative way of talking how he feels crushed physically. Sin weighs heavy on people in guilt. He feels crushed. That the bones you have broken, instead of being sad and overwhelmed, they will rejoice and then he pleads with God again, hide your face from my sins and blot out, scrape off all of these iniquities. So we look through those verses. In verse 10, he says, create in me a clean heart. I talked about this as a unique act of God. Bara is only used with God as the performer of this action. And so only God can cleanse us. Only God can forgive us. Only God can restore us. And he prays to God, create in me a clean heart and renew a steadfast spirit uh, within me. And that, that second part there, to renew a steadfast uh, spirit within him, has to do with strengthening him in the inner man so that he can go forward and, and uh, realize that forgiveness and be strong again. And his next request in verse 11 is, do not cast me away from your presence, a very strong verb uh, that indicates flinging. It's like throwing a javelin. 
and it's getting rid of something, throw, throwing him away as if he is meaningless. Do not cast me from your presence and do not take away your Holy Spirit. This is what had happened with the with uh, Saul when First uh, Samuel sixteen fourteen says, "But the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and a distressing spirit from the Lord came, or troubled him." Now David knew about that experientially because he was called in to play his uh, lyre in order to give comfort to Saul as he was being troubled by this evil spirit. So he is fully aware of the fact that God permanently removed the, the ministry of the spirit from him. And I reminded you last time that in the Old Testament, there's no permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit. The ministry of the Holy Spirit to the leaders of Israel had nothing to do with their spiritual life. It had everything to do with giving them the skill, the wisdom, in leading the nation, in delivering them militarily from their enemies and from uh, and other aspects of service such as in the tabernacle or temple. And you had the Holy Spirit that came upon Aholiab and Bezalel who were the craftsmen who uh, created all of the furniture and did all the metalwork. And the Spirit of the Lord gave them that skill, but it has nothing to do with their spiritual life. And then in verse 12... The NET reads, let me again experience the joy of your deliverance. Now, the New King James, which we'll see in, the, in another slide, says, restore to me the joy of your salvation. That's what we need to talk about. What does this mean, deliverance? Why does the New King James say salvation? Why does the NET say deliverance? The NASB is the second translation on the screen. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit. The verse in the New King James says, Return to me the joy of your deliverance. I've translated it this way. It's not, it shouldn't be salvation. It should be, uh, it should be deliverance. And the first word there, the command there, is the Hebrew word shuv. We've studied it many, many times. It is in the hifil, which is the causative sense. So it is to cause the joy of your deliverance to return to me. The, the idea of shuv is to turn. And so it is to return or to restore to him the joy of deliverance. He has experienced forgiveness many, many times in his life, and right now he's overwhelmed by guilt. He's overwhelmed by remorse and regret, and there is no joy in his life. Now, the word here translated salvation is the word yasha, which has the idea of salvation. It's the root for Yeshua, the name of Jesus, given to him because he will what? Save his people from their sins. And so after studying through numerous usages uses of Yasha in the Psalms, I've become convinced over the past couple of years in our studies that there's not a single place in the Psalms where Yasha is used of justification, salvation. It is always used of deliverance from some immediate problem, whether it is guilt from disobedience, whether it's deliverance from uh, David's enemies, whether it is uh, deliverance from a military power. There are many different circumstances and situations, but the emphasis is always on deliverance from these circumstances in our life because God is the one that we're to trust and he is the one who delivers us. So the deliverance here is not deliverance from eternal condemnation. It is deliverance from being under divine discipline and deliverance uh, from, his, uh, from his guilt. He wants God to restore or turn back to him, cause to turn to him, the joy of deliverance. Now, I mentioned Psalm 51.8 when we went through there in the review where David prayed, make me hear joy and gladness. So when he's talking about return to me the joy of your salvation, 
this is related to the request in verse 8, which is not related to his eternal salvation or justification, but is talking about what should happen when he is forgiven. He's, it's another way of talking about forgiveness. And then it, it should remind us of what Jesus said in John chapter 15, verses 10 and 11. This is related to church-age believers. This is a passage that begins in John chapter 15, 1, that we are to abide in Christ. Now, there are some people, since we talked about John MacArthur earlier, I'll use him for a whipping boy. There are people like the Lordship crowd, like John MacArthur, who believe that abiding is equivalent to being saved and being in Christ because he emphasizes the fact that uh, John says, abide in him. Now, in the Apostle Paul's writings, in him refers to our position in Christ. But Jesus doesn't use that phrase that way. In fact, many times in the previous chapters in John 14, John 13, John 14, when he talks about in him, he talks about relationship, its experience. He talks about him being in the Father and the Father in him. That's not position. That's relationship. So MacArthur makes a fundamental exegetical error, and so do many lordship people in this, because they interpret the phrase in him the way Paul uses it, and John doesn't use it that way, and Jesus didn't use it that way. Different authors use different words with different meanings. That's one of the first things you learn in doing word studies in Scripture is, first and foremost, look at how this one author uses that term. Other authors may use it a slightly different way. And so you always have to make those, those distinctions. So in John chapter 15, when Jesus is talking about abiding in Christ, he's talking about fellowship. Nothing in that passage has anything to do with just being just positional and positional would make it equivalent to being a believer and then you get into some real problems in verses two and three and where it should be understood as divine discipline uh, both in terms of blessing and in terms of cursing where god is using uh, pruning to uh, discipline the believer in the positive sense so that he becomes more and more fruitful and I've covered that a tremendous amount, and it's based on an understanding of the uh, horticultural practices of, of, uh, of Jews at that time period in the vineyard. The first year, there would be maybe no fruit on some new, new vines, so the, the, um, the, the vineyard keeper would come through and would prune it back he would raise up the lower, weaker leaves so it could get more air, more sunshine, and then the next year it would be more fruitful. He was not cutting them off in the sense of uh, removal from salvation. So abiding all the way through there has to do with, with fellowship. So in verse 10, Jesus says, If you keep my commandments, that has to do with our experience. If you're obedient to me, you will abide in my love. The flip side is, if you don't, you won't abide. Abiding is fellowship. If you disobey God, you will, you're sinning, and you will lose fellowship. So he says, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. So he's talking about his permanent fellowship with the Father because, of course, Jesus never sinned. And then in verse 11, that was just to give you some context, these things, that is everything he's been teaching the disciples as they've left the upper room, he says, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may remain, that's that same word abide, minnow in the Greek, that my joy may abide in you. The point is, if you sin, if you break those commandments, then my joy isn't going to abide in you. It will uh, disappear, evaporate, because you are out of fellowship and there's sin and there's guilt that has to be dealt with. So for the joy to remain, there has to be confession 
restoration so that you can abide, continue to abide in Christ's love and continue to abide in Christ. So he says that my joy may abide in you and that your joy may be complete. So it's emphasizing the fact that we have to abide in Christ, which when you look at John 15, 1 through 11, abiding in Christ is the necessary condition for bearing fruit. When you go to John, excuse me, when you go to Paul in Galatians chapter uh, 5, starting in verse 14, he gives the command to love one another. And then he says, walk by the Spirit and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Notice the emphasis on love just as what you have here in uh, John 15.10. So walking by the Spirit happens uh, when we are fulfilling the command to love. When we don't love one another, then we're not abiding in God's love and we've sinned. We're no longer walking by the Spirit. The flesh has taken over, which is what John 15, um, Galatians 5, 6, 16 says, walk by means of the Spirit and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. But if you stop walking by the Spirit, you will fulfill the lust of the flesh. The sin nature takes over, and the result is that you have to recover, which means you have to confess sin, and then you can recover, and the Holy Spirit will then continue working uh, in your life. Now, we get, come then to Psalm 51.13, and Paul, um, Paul, David, at this point, begins to talk about what he will do if he is forgiven. So this section emphasizes the forgiveness that will take place and that if his um, is disciplined, for, uh, the suffering for discipline is changed to suffering for blessing, then he will be able to bless others in various different ways. And so he talks about the fact that he is going to uh, be uh, teaching, he's going to be bringing salvation, he is going to be, I mean, bringing sacrifices, he's going to be rejoicing. And the point in all of this is that when he uh, experiences forgiveness, then he will be able to teach others who are sinners and not forgiven about God's grace in their lives, God's grace provision for them so that they too can confess their sins and experience God's, realize God's forgiveness and be restored to serving him. So he says in verse 13, then I will teach transgressors your ways. And remember that word transgressor is a synonym for sin. And you have the parallel sinners in the second part of the verse I will treat, teach those rebellious sinners, the transgressors, those who have rebelled against God's standards. I will teach them your ways. What are the ways? God's grace, God's goodness, God's love, how to confess sin. So then sinners will be converted. Literally, it's that word shuv again, will be turned to you. They will be turned back to you, and there's that restoration of that relationship, that ongoing relationship with God, which we describe as fellowship. It's not just a passive thing. It's active because it involves walking by the Spirit and abiding in Him. So he uses this word, and I will teach transgressors. It's from the Hebrew word, lamad. Now, if you turn that into a... Um, uh, a noun for teaching, for instruction, you put a T in the front of it, and it's T-L-M-D, which is the word Talmud. Okay, it, it's various forms of this word can refer to a student, can refer to a teacher, and it refers to the activity of instructing. In the basic Cal stem, it means to teach, uh, it means to resolve to learn, but in the PL stem, it means to teach or instruct. It intensifies that basic meaning in the, in the Cal stem. So what he is saying is, I will teach rebellious sinners your ways, the ways of grace, the ways of forgiveness, how God uh, 
how God restores you to a place of forgiveness and service. This word is used a lot in the Psalms. It is used, for example, in Psalm 119.12, the first of eight times in the Psalm 119. Blessed are you, O Lord, Barachatah Adonai, teach me your statutes. Then in Psalm 25, show me your ways, O Lord, teach me your paths, how to live. Those, the term uh, for ways and path, the road, those are terms that are used again and again in the wisdom literature in Proverbs, that there's a way that seems right to a man, but the end thereof is death. So he prays to God, show me your ways, teach me your paths, Psalm 25, 5. Lead me in your truth and teach me. Then you get into a number of places in Psalm 119. I have declared my ways and you answered me. Teach me your statutes. In Psalm 119.26, teach me your statutes. Psalm 119.64, teach me your statutes. Psalm 119.66, teach me good judgment and knowledge. Psalm 119.68, teach me your statutes. Psalm 119.108, and teach me your judgments. Psalm 119.124, and teach me your statutes. Psalm 119.135, and teach me your statutes. What do you think the point is? That we should be praying to God that he teaches us, and he does that in the church age, uh, indirectly through pastors who teach the word, and then we have the indwelling and filling ministry, what does the Holy Spirit fill us with? Fills us with God's Word. So we have the ministry of God, the Holy Spirit, who illuminates us and helps us to understand. That doesn't mean you'll understand it the first time somebody teaches it. You may not understand it the 15th or 20th time somebody teaches it. But eventually, you, you get that's the normal process of learning. We have to have repetition. Sometimes when I come and I teach on a Sunday morning, people go, I hear people, I need to listen to that two or three times. And I'm thinking, well, so do I. If you realize how many times I read through passages in different books to make sure I understood it, 10, 15 times to make sure I got it and write it out, uh, to make sure I got it, you, you would realize that it's just as tough for me as it is for you sometimes. I get up here and teach it, it didn't just pop in my head one day and go, oh, that's it. It took a lot of time and effort reading through different positions and different explanations, all coming at it from the same perspective to truly get it. And I go through that same learning process that you go through. It takes time to learn that which is valuable. If you want to go, go mine, if you want some, go, go get your own gold or, or diamonds. Don't go up to one of these little, every now and then somebody goes up to this diamond mine in Arkansas and they find something significant of value, but most of the time they don't find anything. They go pan for gold and they don't get much. You need a mining engineer who's going to teach you how to do the really hard work to dig into the ground to find where the precious metals or the precious jewels are. You have to study geology, and then you have to get a mining engineer who will teach you how to get to where the precious metals are, the jewels are. It takes time, effort, energy, money, all kinds of things, and it may take years before you see the payoff. Spiritual life is a lot the same way for you and for me. We study and we study and we read, and eventually God brings it home to us. But it just doesn't happen because we showed up on church uh, for three Sundays, and we go back and say, well, you know, I really haven't learned anything, and that pastor's talking over my head, and so I'm going to go find some place where I can just be entertained. That's where most of our culture is today. But they're never going to find any gold or any diamonds. They're never going to understand the spiritual life. They won't understand the riches of God's word because it takes a lot of mental effort. And that's what David is saying over and over again. David probably wrote Psalm 119. I know there are some other views. Nobody really knows. But it is typical of David. Teach me, teach me, teach me, teach me, teach me. Runs all the way through Psalm 
Psalm 119. And it goes back to principles laid down throughout the five books of Moses, throughout Torah, that we may learn to fear the Lord our God. We, we, it doesn't just happen just because one day we wake up, you know, you know I, I, the Bible says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's, it, you have to have that respect, but it takes time. You, there's learning that takes place, and then one day you go, wow, all this is talking about the fact that I need to fear the Lord, and I need to get serious about my spiritual life. And that, that's the beginning. And then you go from there. So we have to study, learn, hear the word, and eventually God uses that, and the Holy Spirit turns the light on, and then we, we realize we have a lot more to go, and we have to be serious about our study of God's word. In verse 14, David again uses the same verb, yasha, for deliver, and as I just pointed out, it doesn't mean save me from eternal punishment, it means to deliver me from the guilt of my sin right now. And by that, he doesn't mean his guilt feelings. He means the true guilt of having disobeyed God and caused the, and committed adultery and then caused the death of Uriah the Hittite, which is specifically what he's describing here. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed. And it is the guilt of... of, of um, Dom, or it's in the plural here, the bloods, which stands for blood guiltiness. So he uses a synonym for yasha in deliver me. It's the word not sal, which is used in many similar, in poetry to to say saved, uh, not using a different word, means to rescue, to deliver, to save, and he, from the guilt of what he has done. And then he says, uh, the God of my salvation, that is my deliverance, and my tongue shall sing aloud of your righteousness. This word ranan isn't just sort of humming a little tune to yourself, humming a hymn to yourself. This is crying out in song or just crying out in the shouting out what God has done for you, that I will, my tongue will shout out about your righteousness. What, what is he? You go back to verse 12, uh, 13. I will teach transgressors. So now my tongue shall shout out about your righteousness, that your righteousness is the standard of your character. Your righteousness uh, sets the standard, and there are absolute standards. And if you violate them, and we all violate them because we are transgressors, because we're sinners, because we commit iniquity, that God restores us. There is a way to get adjusted, readjusted to the righteousness of God. And that is through a confession and God will forgive us. And then he vows that if I am forgiven, he says, Lord, open my lips. The assumption is, forgive me so I will be able to open my lips and my mouth will show forth your praise. So behind all of this is the assumption that he's praying, Lord, forgive me so I can uh, teach transgressors and sinners will be converted to you. Uh, Forgive me so I will be delivered from the guilt of of bloodshed. Uh, Forgive me so that my lips can be opened and I will sing praise to you. And then in verse 16, he says, for you do not desire sacrifice or else I would give it. Now, he's not saying this as an absolute statement. He is talking about those who went through the motions of the sacrifices. They would constantly bring sacrifices, but their heart wasn't in it. They weren't humbling themselves under God. They were just performing the rituals, but there was no internal spiritual reality in their lives. So he says, you do not desire sacrifice, or else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offering. Now here we have two different forms of sacrifice. Uh, Zeba, which could be a Thanksgiving offering, or it could be first fruits. Uh, you do not desire sacrifice. You do not delight in an Ola burnt offering. 
the reality is that there, before you can offer these legitimately, you had to first bring a sin offering and confess your sin. So you have to understand the distinctions between the different kinds of offerings. First, there is a sin offering or trespass offering. Then you can bring a a sacrifice, which is to tell people about what God has done in forgiving you, and an olah, which is a complete burned-up offering, which talks about the fact that you are, again, telling God that your whole life is to follow him and to serve him, and everything is is burned up and given to him and rises uh, in the smoke. He says this in many other places in the Old Testament. For example, in Psalm 40, verse 6, sacrifice and offering you do not desire. That Those are secondary after forgiveness. Uh, burnt offering and sin offering you did not require. It's, it's so often they would come and go through these rituals without having confess sin and without having been restored uh, to fe- to fellowship it comes up again in Isaiah 1 11 to 13 I'll read it to you this is in the first part of Isaiah the first chapter it is the indictment of the nation Israel to what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices to me same word zibah what is the multi- purpose of the multitude of your sacrifices to me? I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. He's not rejecting the f- sin offerings, which is the basis for forgiveness. He's, God is saying you're bringing the burnt offerings and the other offerings would have to do with, with celebration of forgiveness and are the foundation for your ongoing a spiritual life, and you're ignoring the fact that you're not confessing sin. So he says, bring no more these futile sacrifices. Incense is an abomination to me. The new moons, the Sabbaths, the calling of assemblies, all of that is in the law. He's saying, I can't endure iniquity and the sacred. They're sinning by not confessing sin and not being restored to their relationship uh, with the Lord. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They are trouble to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not hear. Your hands are full of blood. I remember, I think his name was Jimmy Draper. He was a pastor of First Baptist Church of Oklahoma City, and he was a president of the uh, of the. Uh, Southern Baptist Convention at the time, and he made a statement in a sermon that God does not hear the prayers of unsaved Jews. And that made the national news, and people accused him of anti-Semitism and arrogance and everything. Isaiah is saying the same thing right here. Because you haven't had your sins forgiven and you haven't been restored to fellowship, it doesn't matter whether you're a Jew, a Gentile, an Apache Indian, a Filipino. It doesn't matter who you are. If you don't have your sins dealt with, God does not hear your prayers. The only possible prayer is, Lord, save me. That's it. If you are not have not had your sins first dealt with, whether it's in salvation or whether it's with confession, then God is not going to pay attention to our prayers. Does God hear him? Sure, he does. God's omniscient. He knows exactly what we're saying, but it's not effective. God's not going to pay attention. God requires a broken and contrite heart. He says the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. It's a good translation. By broken spirit, he means your arrogance and your self-absorption and your sinful rebellion is broken. You realize that you've been acting like a rebel against God and you are admitting it and that's what God wants. He wants a broken and a contrite heart. The word for contrite is the Hebrew word daka, which means crushed. Your rebellion in your sin nature is crushed and you confess your sin. Now we come to the last two verses which many commentators think just don't fit and they were added later but we have to understand a little bit about David's background. David is the king. 
He says in verse 18, do good in your good pleasure to Zion. What does Zion have to do with all of this? David is the king. David is living in Zion. David, David's fortunes and the fortunes of Zion are inextricably linked. The forgiveness of the king is linked to the health of Zion and the nation. Instead of taking David and executing him, which is what the Mosaic law required of an adulterer and of a murderer, he has been praying that God would forgive him and that would cleanse him and that these penalties would be removed. So that's that's the focus of verse 18. Do good in your good pleasure. Do good to Israel. Be, forgive me and Israel will go forward and things will be better for the nation, uh, build the walls of Jerusalem, strengthen our defenses. He's the king. He's the one who would do that. And this becomes clear in the next verse. Then you shall be pleased with the sacrifices of righteousness, the righteous sacrifices. First, there has to be forgiveness. Then you will be pleased with the righteous sacrifices, with the burnt offering and the whole burnt offering. See, these are the same two types of, of sacrifices, Ziba and Ola. And if he's forgiven, then God would be pleased with the sacrifices and with their whole burnt offering. Then they shall offer bulls on your, off, on your altar in order to uh, praise God. So this is the thrust of Psalm 51, the cry for prayer, the, the uh, crying prayer for forgiveness. And God is grants that forgiveness. David is told by Nathan that he is forgiven. And then next time we're going to come back and we will look at Psalm 32. Psalm 32 uh, is usually connected because of its content with Psalm 51. However, in the uh, superscript of Psalm 32, there is no statement of its, of its historical context, but it fits very well with the realization of David's forgiveness after Psalm 51. So we'll come back next time. There are 11 verses in Psalm 32, and then we will, we will look at that. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to go through the Psalm, Psalm of David, understanding confession, forgiveness, restoration of service, restoration of ministry, restoration to fellowship, and walking with you. And we pray that you would challenge us and encourage us with what we've learned, that we need to keep short accounts, that we need to focus upon serving you, walking with you, and recognizing that when we sin, even when it surprises or shocks us, even when it's uh, what we think is a horrible sin, it is covered by your grace, covered by the death of Christ on the cross. And so we can realize our forgiveness and move forward, completely restored to close, intimate fellowship with you. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.